Good evening and welcome, friends, fans, and colleagues to another great show of Voices of the Sacred Feminine here on Blog Talk. I'm your host, uh, Karen Tate, and I'm happy to be with you for this uh, holiday show. I hope you had a, a wonderful Christmas, Kwanzaa, Yule, Solstice. Uh, whatever you call it, however you celebrate it, and uh, perhaps you're uh, kind of just uh, gearing up for the uh, the New Year's weekend ahead of us. But whatever you're doing, I hope you're enjoying yourself and uh, you are creating your new traditions and uh, um, just having as, as much joy as, uh, as one possibly can. Uh, in, uh, in this day and age And um, speaking of that This day and age um, You know as, as gloomy As things might seem um, Sometimes um, I think we really have to keep our eyes Open for uh, Glimmers of hope And I think we have had A number of glimmers of hope Just recently uh, One of them uh, A big one quite frankly Is actually the topic of our show It's with our beloved Marie Again, Buddhist being uh, her work being vindicated, and we're going to get into that in more depth. Uh, in just a few minutes with Carol Christ and uh, Miriam Dexter. But uh, think about it for a minute. Um, Webster's Dictionary declared feminism the word of the year. Uh, it, just uh, a week or so ago, or, or a couple weeks ago, the, uh, forgive me, the, the time has sort of just, uh, it's, it's become, become one bland, but um, uh, the Senate race, uh, uh, Democrats, uh, you know, won there in Alabama, uh, Roy Moore, uh, the person we were all afraid would be elected to the Senate uh, with his, uh, you know, regressive leanings and, uh, you know, going out with young girls, all of those things that came out in the news about this <clears throat> about this fellow. Uh, luckily, um, black women especially uh, came to the polls and uh, handed us uh, a win. Uh, and uh, I, I think that speaks to, um, you know, progressive ideas uh, being what more people want than, um, than those ideas that aren't progressive, uh, those ideas that move us forward or what the majority of us want. Uh, I read somewhere that the December issue of Vogue, uh, there was an article about menstruation, and it was a positive article, um, you know, talking about um, – female empowerment rather than the usual things we hear um uh you know uh, you know those those sorts of uh ideas where you know we should just take a pill and make it all go away um so uh you know we have to you know grip uh these victories where we uh where we find them and um um, you know, and really hold on to them and realize that we are making progress. Uh, just think of all the um, awareness that is being raised right now and all the people that are motivated to get up uh, off their couch uh, and actually participate and make the world a better place. <clears throat> and along with all those, uh, those things I've just mentioned, Mm -hmm. um, as I said, uh, our beloved Maria, uh, her work has been uh, vindicated, uh, and that's what we're going to be talking about uh, tonight. Uh, Lord Colin Renfrew, um, he uh, really had been an obstacle to Maria and uh, uh, 
I guess you might call him um, her arch enemy. I've I've heard heard him referred to that way. Uh, he was not a supporter of her theories. Uh, well, now you know he is uh, rethinking all of that and uh, uh, and said it publicly, and that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Um, so I, I'm going to welcome uh, Carol Christ and uh, Miriam Dexter uh, to the show. And um, Carol, Carol Christ just recently uh, uh, wrote a great blog on feminism and religion uh, titled uh, Maria Gimbutas Triumphant, uh, colon, uh, Renfrew Concedes. And... Um, uh, she will be joined, uh, as I have said already, by her colleague Miriam Robbins Dexter, who's been on the show here many times. Both both of these ladies have been with me very often, um, you know, to my great pleasure. We always enjoy them here, and the two of them will reflect on the concession by this powerful archaeologist, and uh, he's kind of been an academic gatekeeper and a vociferous critic of uh, Maria Gimbutas. Um, so, um, so that's what we're going to jump into and uh, discuss right now. So, ladies, um, uh, Carol, I know it's—I uh, think it's early in the morning for you. Uh, you know, over in Greece. Uh, thank you for you know calling in at this. Uh, you know, not not the best time, uh, but this is an important subject. So, thank you very much. And um, uh, Miriam, I know you're a little bit under the weather, but uh, I'm glad we're all here tonight. Uh, thank you both I for am being here. here. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Karen. <clears throat> um, so, ladies, let me just uh, start with your bios, um, because I know, uh, you know, every show we have new listeners, and uh, for those who don't know of your extensive um, uh, scholarly backgrounds, um, you know, let me share that with listeners so that uh, uh, they know that uh, what we are talking about tonight, you are probably some of the best experts on that, and, you know, we're going to be getting it right here, and then we'll jump right in. So I'll just start with Carol. Uh, Carol Christ holds a Ph.D. from Yale in Religious Studies and is a founding voice in the study of women in religion and in the goddess movement. Uh, she's the author of eight books, including most recently Goddess and God in the World, Conversations in Embodied Theology with Judith Plaskow and the reissue of her memoir A Serpentine Path, Mysteries of the Goddess which describes her transformation on the first goddess pilgrimage to Crete um, her books are available on Amazon. Uh, there's also information on the goddess pilgrimage to Crete that she has been doing for years. Uh, you can find that on her website, uh, goddessariadne.org. Uh, Carol says that Maria Gimbutas' insights about the peaceful, settled, egalitarian, matrifocal cultures of old Europe that worship goddess as the powers of birth, death, and regeneration have been confirmed for me uh, in over 20 years of study of the art, artifacts, and archaeology of ancient Crete. The argument from absence is convincing. There are no larger-than-life-size depictions of a king, as in Egypt and Syria, and taken as a whole, the cultural artifacts do not celebrate warfare, violence, and uh, or domination. Um, and um, Miriam... Uh, Miriam holds a Ph.D. in uh, ancient Indo-European languages, uh, archaeology and comparative mythology from UCLA. Uh, 
her first book, When Sagadas, a source book, uh, in which she translated texts from 13 languages, was used for courses she taught at UCLA for a decade and a half. She completed and supplemented the final book of Maria Gimbutas, The Living Goddess, her 2010 book co-authored with Victor Mayer, uh, titled Sacred Display, Divine, and Magical Female Figures of Eurasia, won the 2012 Association for the Study of Women in Mythology Sarasvati Award for Best Nonfiction Book on Women and Mythology. In 2013, Miriam and Victor published a new monograph uh, titled Sacred Display, New Findings, in the University of Pennsylvania online series, uh, Sinoplatonic Papers. Uh, and with Vicki Noble, Miriam edited the anthology for Mothers of the Women's Spirituality Movement, Elders and Visionaries, um, Miriam's the author of over 30 scholarly articles, 11 encyclopedia articles on ancient female figures. She's edited and co-edited 16 scholarly volumes. For 13 years, she taught courses in Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit language in the Department of Classics at USC. She's guest lectured at New Bulgarian University and uh, Alexandru Iowan Cusa University in Romania. So, as I said, uh, dear listeners, I couldn't have uh, two better uh, women with me tonight to discuss this uh, incredible news about Maria's work being vindicated. So let's um, let's start at the beginning and let's um, uh, bear in mind, ladies, that some listeners don't know the history here uh, and don't know all the details. So, um, Carol, I'll throw it to you first. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, your blog, um, uh, you know, in feminism and religion, and um, the lecture where uh, you know this arch enemy of Maria actually uh, finally decided she's been right all along. Okay, I think first I'll start with a little bit of a review of some of Maria's uh, scholarly contributions. She was born in Lithuania, and um, she got her Ph.D. in Germany, and then she came to the United States and um, studied at the Harvard Research Library and wrote several books while she was there. Then she was given uh, a position of professor of archaeology at UCLA, and from there she taught for several decades and also conducted numerous um, archaeological digs in uh, Greece and um, Eastern Europe. And uh, this was the basis of uh, much of her work. And she also had the ability to read um, almost all of the European languages. She said 20 languages. And so unlike most other scholars uh, trained in America or in, um, in, in England, uh, she was able to read um, not only works that were written in French and German, but also in uh, Eastern European languages and in Russian. So she had a massive knowledge, which is often um, forgotten by her critics. Um, her most famous work is The Language of the Goddess, in which um, she uh, pro- reproduced images of thousands of small images, uh, mainly um, small statues, but also um, artworks from the uh, Neolithic period. The, and um, these uh, images have inspired uh, women in a variety of fields, including artists and uh, the women's spirituality movement, as well as scholars. Um, in these images, um, she shows that the goddess was the primary deity in old Europe, and uh, she was understood to be the life force in nature, the powers of birth, uh, 
death and regeneration um, that sustain all of life. Sometimes people think it's a fertility goddess or a mother goddess, but it's much more than that. Maria liked to speak of the goddess as the creatress of all and the power in enlivening all, not only human life, not only giving birth to babies, but all of the birth, death, and regeneration that occurs throughout the seasons and cycles of our Earth and the universe as a whole. And um, she, however, believed that her most important work was her next book, which is called The Civilization of the Goddess. Um, And she said that uh, she might have liked to have called it Europe before patriarchy or Europe before the Indo-Europeans, um, because, but the publisher changed the title, as they often do. I've had it happen to me many times. Um, and so the, the, the title doesn't describe the work as clearly as it might. I've just been reviewing the civilization of the goddess in preparation for this uh, conversation. And um, in the civilization of the goddess, uh, Maria reviews archaeological reports from hundreds of archaeological digs in uh, the Neolithic period in uh, southern and eastern Europe and Europe as a whole, including um, England and the northern European countries as well. And the importance, why she considered this her most important work, I believe, is because this is the material evidence. This is the physical evidence. This is the evidence on the ground. Um, people can criticize her and say, oh, how do we know it's a goddess? It just looks like a fat old lady or it just looks like a pregnant woman or maybe it's a doll. Um, And that's a facile dismissal of her work and it's not accurate. But they say, how does she know that there there was a peaceful society? How does she know that there was a a goddess uh, culture? And um, in the civilization of the goddess, uh, Maria Gimbutas uh, looks at the evidence on the ground um, in support of her theory, which I'll just mention again, which is that um, old Europe uh, was a peaceful, matrifocal, uh, settled uh, agricultural society that worshipped the goddess as the powers of birth, death, and regeneration in all of life. And in contrast to that, She describes the Indo-European culture, which is the one that we've inherited um, through our university systems, um, through the ancient Greeks and so forth, um, as a patriarchal, patrilineal, horse-riding culture that worshipped the shining gods of the sky as a reflection of their bronze armor and weapons, a warlike culture uh, that invaded Europe. Now, old Europe... Um, existed from about 6,500 to 3,500 before the Common Era, before Christ. And uh, the Indo-Europeans began coming into Europe about um, 4,400 B.C., but their major invasion was in the third millennium, that is between 3,000 and 2,000 uh, B.C. And now we've come to the uh, point of the lecture, Uh, by Colin Renfrew and my blog. Um, Colin Renfrew is an English uh, academic. He was a decade or so younger than Maria Gimbutas, still living, and um, he's been understood to be the grand old man uh, of British archaeology, and of course Americans tend to look up to Brits in a lot of cases, especially since he's now considered to be Lord 
Colin Renfrew, we all kind of bow down to that, even though we don't believe in it. Um, and he has been a very, very powerful gatekeeper in the field of archaeology. I would say that he has been uh, in charge of many journals and uh, also book publications. He has the power to reject articles, to require them to be rewritten, to include his point of view and so on, and to exclude Maria's. Um, and Colin Renfrew uh, really has been a leader in the attack on uh, Maria Gambudis, despite the fact that they were close friends at one point and even excavated together uh, over a, a <clears throat> several year period. Um, the point of their dispute um, had to do with how the Indo-European languages got introduced uh, into Europe. But the real point behind it, I believe, is much more, um, it's not so technical and it's much more emotional. What happened when the language of the goddess was first published um, is that uh, a lot of women were totally inspired by Maria's um, depiction of the culture of old Europe as being pre-patriarchal, peaceful, and matrifocal, that is female-centered, not female-dominated, and worshiping the goddess. And a lot of them went to universities and they said, oh, I want to study that. I want to study that. I want to study when women had power and there was no war and the goddess was the central symbol. And I think it just freaked academics out. Um, they just didn't, I suppose most of them were male at the time, and they just didn't know what to do with that. These women weren't all highly educated yet, and so they were able to dismiss them as just speaking fantasies. Um, and Maria Gambudis was, uh, was basically dismissed uh, with the same brush. Um, scholars began to write that her work was based in um, a dream of a golden age, a fantasy of a world without war, a fantasy that there was a time before patriarchal domination. And it's such a misunderstanding of the depth and breadth of her work. But articles that, that just kind of picture her as a, person who sat down on her armchair and, and imagined a goddess uh, keep getting republished while Maria's work is not written. I think I'll turn it over to um, Miriam to talk a little bit about the Kurgan uh, theory, and then I can, we can return and talk about uh, Colin Renfrew's speech. Perfect. Okay, sounds like a plan, ladies. Um, so, Miriam, would you, uh, would you please? Yes, I'm very happy. Um, Maria's theory was that the Proto-Indo-Europeans had a homeland uh, north of the Black and Caspian Seas in the forested and grassy steppe areas, um, which is why, of course, they were they early on domesticated the horse because you really need a horse to traverse those distances. About 4500, 4400 BCE, for some reason, the, either there wasn't enough food or there was drought or there was overpopulation, but people moved out of, of the steppe areas and started migrating in all possible directions, north, south, east, west. Um, I believe that they were mostly male, and there is a, there are some wonderful recent um, 
genetic articles that are showing that that most of these movements were most of the movements by peoples who ended up all over Europe, um, Italy, Spain, Greece, um, the British Isles, Ireland, um, Germany, Scandinavia, um, as far east as all of the Danube cultures um, in Romania, Bulgaria, Serbia, as as far northeast, actually, as Chinese Turkestan, and south into India and Iran and other cultures as well. These are all the points to which these people migrated and genetic studies are being done in these areas finding that there is an incursion during the time um, which Maria marked as the three waves of migrations. There are incursions of a new genetic strain, um, R1, I believe R1A, which can now be traced back to to the steppe areas, again, north of the Black and Caspian Seas. So the genetic evidence actually shows that mostly males came out of the Indo-European homeland and that that was the homeland because that is the origin of of this haplogroup, this genetic marker, and that they then spread in all directions. And often their um, genetic signature, especially in the early um, waves of, of migration, is relatively small, but we do see that there is an incursion of a new genetic haplogroup, and it belongs to these males. So that was Maria's Kurgan theory, Kurgan named for the kinds of mounds, um, a Russian word, the kinds of mounds that were put over graves um, among the Kurgan peoples. As they moved out, you can see differences in graves and know not only, I mean, Maria was able to trace without doing genetics a difference. The difference was that First, uh, sorry. First, the Indo-Europeans went to the Danube area, Eastern Europe, and there, um, all of a sudden, there are not just collective graves with very, what I would say, equal grave goods. There are also now graves of males who had a lot of goods. So there is now. Uh, some special status accorded accorded to these newcomers for whatever reason. So you can trace the um, the burials and see the migrations of the Indo-Europeans in that way. Now, when the Indo-Europeans migrated, they carried the not just the Proto-Indo-European language, but also um, in different ways. Um, different Indo-European groups had already come closely together, for example, the Balts and Slavs. So these languages were carried to all the different places they migrated. And for whatever reason, because they had superior status, superior force, uh, the horse, it's 
at this point we don't know for certain, but their languages won out. And the languages that were spoken in all of these areas became substrate. They added to the sound system of the new languages, the phonology. They even added to the grammar. But all these languages became Indo-European. Colin Renfrew wrote a book a couple decades ago, more, that that whose hypothesis was that the Indo-Europeans were European farmers who then migrated in various directions. There is no farming, very little farming technology in Proto-Indo-European, so that makes that not work. And furthermore, now we know that indeed the Indo-Europeans had to have come from the steppe area because that is the origin of this DNA haplogroup. I think that sort of covers it, unless you have any questions. Yeah, I can pick well, up from um, there. Okay. Well, Karen, well, just, one question, question. just one question, uh, Miriam, before we, we go back to Carol. Um, uh-huh. I just want to make sure I un- understand the significant difference between what Maria believed and what um, uh, Renfrew believed. So are you saying that Maria believed it was um, more of an invasion where uh, the, the other fellow, uh, uh, Colin Renfrew, uh, I, I have trouble saying his last name. Uh, Colin Renfrew uh, believed it was it was it was just uh, peaceful farmers. Was, was it, or was there more to it than that? There's more to it than that. Um, the migrations were different in intensity. The early migrations were, were um, some of the the migrating people assimilated with the people who were already there, the indigenous people, while others um, left fires, left some evidence of mass burial. So there was both invasion and assimilation. So it isn't quite hard and fast. Also, there's a great time difference between Colin Renfrew's theory and Maria's. Uh, Colin Renfrew believed that um, the Indo-European languages spread throughout Europe and um, parts of Asia around 6,000 BCE, whereas Maria believed it was more like 4,400 and that all the sedentary farmers were pre-Indo-European. Does that okay. answer your question? Okay, thank you. Okay, and just, uh, um, just to uh, put it in another way, um, I, was, uh, I did my DNA a few years ago, and um, I found that um, my there are two main DNAs that you can do uh, your mother's mDNA and your father's uh, Y DNA. The mDNA is passed to both males and females, but it's only passed on by females. So my mDA came from my mother line, my, from my mother, my mother's mother, and so on back uh, to people unknown. Uh, my my father did his Y DNA, and the Y DNA is passed from father to son, not passed to the female. So I don't actually have my father's Y DNA marker in my in my uh, genetic uh, history. But what I found was that my MDA, uh, which happens to be from the T line, uh, is dated to about 18,000 BC. Uh, its origins. 
and it dates back to migrations out of Africa and then migrations uh, that continued into the Middle East and then up into Europe um, after the end of the last uh, ice age. And um, my father, who did his a few years later, he had this R1Y DNA marker that um, Miriam talks about. And I, didn't, I hadn't been following the research as closely as, as Miriam had been at the time, and it was just starting to come out. But I looked it up, and this R1 marker is carried by more than half of all European men, more than half, far more than half, now. whereas the markers for the female line tend to go back um, to the uh, Paleolithic, to the old Ice Age period, time of the uh, cave paintings uh, in Lascaux and so on. And the male DNA goes to 2500 BC, approximately. That's what it's dated as before, a little before, a little after. And that's what my dad carries. Now, then you ask the question, how did this happen? <laughs> that there are all of these, there are many, you know, 10 or so DNA uh, lines uh, dating way, way, way back in the mother line. And there's this one main line in the, in the, in the father line. And I looked up some articles, of course, they, they were probably basing their work partly on Meridian Buddhists, but the idea, the most convincing idea is that these people came in and took over. They were groups of men, as Maria said. Um, perhaps I think maybe they were traders in the beginning because men, even Maria said that men were primarily involved in trade. They came in, saw, it was, saw what was there, and started to take it and settled down with the things, the lands and properties that they'd taken over. And because they were, uh, uh, although they were a smaller group of people, their children were more likely to survive. They probably being... I believe they were warlike. Miriam, Miriam sort of uh, didn't say that, but uh, that's what <laughs> I believe. <laughs> um, I mean, she didn't say it because it's questioned. Um, they were warlike. They took over land. They took over property. They took over women. They killed the men, and they took over the women as their wives, slaves, and concubines. And so they were able to reproduce, and that's why the male DNA um, of the Indo-European invaders has taken over in Europe from the male DNA of the earlier peoples. But the females, apparently Miriam was right, they didn't bring that many females with them. They married, enslaved, or raped the women of the, uh, the women who were already there in the land. So the female um, lines continued. Um, now this uh, theory that I, as I presented it, and that's the way Maria presented it too, that it was an invasion, not simply an incursion or a, you know a movement of peoples, has been very unpopular in archaeology. Archaeologists of, of Colin Renfrew's generation um, had the theory that they called processional uh, archaeology, that is that cultures are not changed by invasion or takeover, or hostile violence, or things like that, cultures simply evolve. So taking the processional view, um, we can imagine that maybe we could even concede that there could have been a more peaceful time, but it evolved into a warlike culture through internal reasons, not because somebody came in and conquered you, but because ah, you just decided it would be good to have weapons and male domination. <laughs> and um, that's been the view. Now, I find that view incredibly self-serving, especially when well, perpetuated it's, it's, it's by it's an like, Englishman. 
who ruled <laughs> the world, whose country ruled the but world yeah. through colonization in our historical memory. And we know very well yeah. that the Americas were taken over and their cultures were pretty much destroyed, their languages pretty much destroyed by a superior uh, people, a, pe- a superior people meaning superiorly armed, having better armed. weapons. Uh, better ability to um, take over from a, an unarmed or less armed culture. And, I mean, we know that wasn't a process, unless we want right. to completely well, deny, uh, you know, the facts on the ground. That was not a process where the Indians uh, in America said, oh, gee, like, uh, mm, I think we'd rather be, we'd rather be Europeans. No. Right. Um, yeah, they I mean, the, the words to... to the words denial, wishful thinking, disillusionment, uh, all of those uh, things come to mind. I mean, one only has to, <laughs> Not as you on said, the real side. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, all but, one has to do is look at the history of the world and how things happen. It processional too. I mean, what what a ben, what a benign term. Processional is if they, um, you know, uh, I, I don't know. I, I think of a, um, uh, a a procession in a church or something. You know, just this benign uh, walk in, and uh, it, that's yeah, that's crazy talk. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Maria did say that the successive waves became more violent. So by the third wave, there's a whole lot of violence, and that's very close to the Bronze Age where so many cultures were destroyed, like yeah. Troy. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so Carol, um, could you sort of summarize, uh, you know, well, was there any more to uh, Renfew's speech that you wanted to share yes, or what your reaction you, to um, it? Unfortunately, the uh, University of Chicago Oriental Institute, which is where he gave the speech, which was the first inaugural Maria Gimbutas lecture. Um, They had uh, the speech online, and I used it. I listened to it a couple of times and used it in preparing my blog. It's now offline. Um, I don't know if, if, I mean, I know the blog has been been, um, sent out on Facebook more than a thousand times. Maybe it got to the eyes of Colin Renfrew and he said, uh-uh, I think I better rewrite that speech before it goes public. Who knows? Or maybe mm-hmm. I don't even want it, anybody to be able to quote it. I don't, know what, I don't know what happened, but it's been removed with no reason given from YouTube. <clears throat> in any case, in the lecture, um, uh, Lord Renfrew, Colin, as I called him, uh, talked about his um, friendship with Maria. And throughout the speech, he calls her Maria not Maria Gambudas, not Professor, you know, just Maria. And so in my blog, I called him Colin just for fun. I <laughs> love that. We usually refer to each other by first names, and we're doing it here, but we both knew Maria, and um, we're not giving an academic lecture. I wouldn't call her Maria. We was giving an academic lecture, not even in the no. blog. I called her Gambudas. But he talks about, first he talked about his friendship with Maria, and um, then he... <clears throat> talked about, uh, he gave a, I would say, a archaeology 101 lecture. It wasn't very, nothing new in it, um, about the origin of the theories about the Indo-European languages, how they've changed over time, uh, Maria's uh, Kurgan theory, his theory that uh, the Indo-European languages came from Anatolia or modern Turkey, and <clears throat> and uh, he also discussed his own processional uh, view. Um, and then at the very end of the lecture, 
uh, he talked about <clears throat> the research on the third, what Maria called the third Kurgan wave, where this is uh, 20, roughly 2500 BC, before and after. Um, and uh, this, and he he talked about the new research showing that um, this wave did actually exist. They did come from, it's scientifically been proven that these people did come from north of the Black Sea. They did come down into Europe, and they did somehow take over um, in terms of their Y DNA becoming the most prominent DNA in Europe. And uh, so he, he conceded uh, that she was right. In fact, he said, uh, Maria Gimbutis's he didn't say Gimbus, he said Maria's Kurgan hypothesis has been magnificently vindicated. And um, basically, if you listen to the lecture closely, what he concedes is that there was a group of people who came down from north of the Black Sea and brought the Indo-European languages into Europe. He does not concede that there was a previous pre-patriarchal um, peaceful, uh, goddess-worshipping, uh, matrifocal, uh, sedentary agricultural um, culture that was in contrast to the culture brought by the Indo-Europeans, which was patriarchal, patrilineal, warlike, and so on. Uh, so he doesn't concede that. He only concedes that these people came down and that that part of her Kirkland hypothesis has been proved. But I um, concluded my blog by saying that even though he only conceded part of her theory, um, his concession would probably open the doors for other archaeologists to consider her work as a whole more seriously. Um, and hopefully that will be the case. So, ladies, why do you think um, he said anything at all? I mean, could he not ignore it anymore? Um, I, I guess I just wonder, why did he even crack the door open? Because of the new DNA evidence. It's irrefutable. Okay. Okay. Do you yeah, want to repeat that? that? Yeah. Do you want to repeat that? Um, just so the readers yeah. get it? Or the listeners get yes. it? <laughs> <clears throat> Sorry. Um, he couldn't hide any longer from the truth because of the new DNA evidence that's come out in the last few, just the last few years. It's irrefutable evidence. So what will it take to prove the rest of her theories? All people have to do is go to Eastern Europe to the museums and look at the artifacts I mean, these were artifacts made by, a, by sedentary cultures which had enough free time to create absolute beauty. The, the flowing lines of the designs on some of the pots, the, I mean, they created not just female figurines, but, but just gorgeous pottery and other works. So, and, so let me ask. Uh, go ahead, Mary. Talk about Crete. Yes, please. Um, in, and I would agree with Maria. I haven't been able to do. I mean, with Miriam, I haven't been able to um, do Thank that. Thank you for that. But um, I've been spending the last more than twenty years um, uh, going 
four times a year or more to the um, archaeological museums in Crete. And Maria considered um, Crete to be the final flowering of the culture of old Europe, despite the fact that it had moved into the Bronze Age um, past what the Neolithic stage of early agriculture. Um, and the reason that Crete would be the final flowering of old Europe is because it was the southernmost point in Europe. If the so-called invasions or incursions were coming down from the north, um, Crete would be the last place they could hit. And since the Indo-Europeans were not primarily seafaring peoples, they didn't immediately jump back down to the bottom of the Peloponnese uh, in Greece and jump into their boats and go conquer Crete. Um, also, Crete was a very powerful uh, trading partner uh, throughout the Mediterranean area in that period, and they probably left them alone because they wanted the stuff that they were producing. Um, but in Crete, um, one of the things that's, if you, if you spend a lot of time with the art and artifacts of Crete, there's basically no depiction of violence. You can find one or two little pieces that might show a little tiny bit of violence out of thousands of artifacts. Um, and they're also the, the artifacts are, I mean, you don't see the lion killing the lamb, you don't see the uh, hunter killing the prey, except for maybe on one piece, and you don't see um, f soldiers fighting with each other, you don't see Perseus holding the head of Medea, the severed head of Medea, you don't see Amazons being defeated, you don't see rape, you don't see any of that. Um, basically, the artifacts are small-scale. That is, most of them are less than 12 inches high. Many of them, are, many, many of them, are, the artifacts of images of animals and humans are pretty small, very small. No statues that you have to look up and go, "Oh my God, that must be God," uh, or, or "Oh, I better bow down to this king." There's nothing like that. They're all on a small scale. They're all, uh, as Miriam said, uh, incredibly beautiful spirals, spiraling into spirals, life bursting forth from spirals in the form of flowers, seeds burst, bursting forth into plants, and so on. It's a celebration of life, uh, just exactly what Maria Gimbuda said, the powers of birth, death, and renewal in all of life, not even primarily in human life, but in all of life. And if you contrast that, with a visit to the museum in Athens, the National Archaeological Museum, mm. you will be shocked. Um, because there, almost around every corner, is Perseus holding the severed head of Medea, our soldiers fighting other soldiers. Athena herself has got a, you know, a sword, and she's presiding over a battle between uh, two generations of the gods. Um, it's all about violence. And also the size. Right. Everything is bigger than you. So you go in and you go, oh, isn't that great? And that's not what the, the ancient Cretans were trying to do. They were trying to say, isn't it wonderful that we're part of this? And um, right. the size is so important, and I call it the argument from absence. There are no kings being worshipped. There's no image of a king. There's no big god. There's no big male figure. Um, in ancient Crete, and this is the difference. So two questions, um, in, uh, parallel questions. You said that uh, the talk has been removed. Um, is it possible, uh, are there transcripts out there, or could transcripts be made? Um, 
And the second question is, I mean, I've talked to you ladies and other people on the show about if scholars, uh, you know, wanted to stick by, um, you know, Maria's uh, theories, you know, they couldn't expect to get tenure, that sort of thing. So they had to, you know, toe the academic line, so to speak. Uh, do you think this might change that? And I'll throw it out to whichever one of you ladies feel most comfortable answering those questions. I think we have a long way to go before women will get tenure for um, focusing on the divine feminine. Well, that's not a good answer, Miriam, but I appreciate your <laughs> Sorry. candor. Your candor. Well, I can say that. <laughs> well, it's in, a start. Uh, baby steps. Baby steps. You know. Baby steps. Um, right. Um, and, yeah, I mean, neither of, about, us, neither uh, of us got, ten, got the jobs that we might have liked to have gotten for our work. But um, just recently, the Heraklion Museum has been um, revamped and reopened, um, and it's following the, another wave of archaeological uh, you know, uh, theory, which is to talk about the material culture, which, of course, Maria was doing herself, uh, to talk about the artifacts from daily life. But one of the things that uh, we haven't mentioned here, but I'll just say it now, is that the reason um, the Neolithic period um, was a period when women uh, were honored and revered is because it's most likely that women invented agriculture. Uh, why do we think that? Because <clears throat> agriculture um, must have developed out of, not out of hunting, but out of those who were doing the gathering, those who were gathering the Good fruits, point. the nuts, and the berries, those who were preparing food at campsites or in the mouth of caves. And they would have noticed the people who were doing this, who were collecting these uh, things and preparing them to eat, would have noticed that if they dropped some seeds around the campsite, one year some little shoots came up, and guess what? It was the same thing as the seeds we dropped. This is why almost all people who consider this question, and I'm talking about scholars, uh, would, as <laughs> one of our friends used to say, concede that women probably <laughs> invented agriculture. And then they move right on and don't discuss it. And in the new Caracalion um, uh, Museum, they start off with the invention of agriculture. Man, I mean, they use the male generic in both Greek and English. Man has uh, developed a new technology. It's called agriculture. And they don't even mention that it might have been women, or it probably was women, not man or men, who invented agriculture. And way back in the corner of the first room, they have a very small display of uh, goddess, uh, we call them goddess statues or statuettes or figurines. And they say uh, these images are female, male, and unknown, uh, and animal, and we don't know what they mean. <laughs> and, <laughs> well. you know, if they were taking Maria's work seriously, they would say because women invented agriculture, uh, the symbol of the female body became a symbol of the creative powers of the universe. Da, da, da. And it wasn't just the power to give birth, it was the power to conserve the mysteries, to tell other people how agriculture works. And it was an intelligent power, not just a bodily power, it was both. Blessed be. But they don't do that. Blessed be. <laughs> so, uh, nice so Miriam, can't... Yes. 
Yes, yes, absolutely, Carol. Thank you. Um, uh, well, Miriam, I want to ask you. I mean, uh, other than, you know, it, it it may feel like you're sort of stating the obvious, but just to try to help. Uh, connect the dots, you know, for folks who haven't been following this for years, like like you two, um, this this dispute, uh, this this whole thing. Why um, why should feminists be interested in it? Um, and uh, you know, and how does that connect to goddess and the divine feminine? I mean, can you sort of connect the dots between uh, all of that, please, so that um, they have a clear picture? Yes. It's the difference between equalitarian culture, where everyone can flower, and patriarchy, which absolutely suppresses women and people of any other ethnicity and anybody who doesn't look like that person and and have the gender of that male person. So it's a difference between flowering and suppression, in my opinion. Okay. Just to continue, it's also, uh, Karen, you sent us a quote a couple of weeks ago when you asked us to be on the program from Simone de Beauvoir, in which she said that women don't have a history, they don't have a culture. And therefore, even though they're probably the largest oppressed group in the world, um, they don't band together because there's nothing taught. They don't have a history, a culture, a religion that can tie them together. And I think part of the reason for the visceral uh, reaction, emotional reaction against Marie Gimbutas's work is that she was offering women a history. And she wasn't just offering a history and a religion and a culture that was different from the patriarchal culture. She was saying, this is the culture that we need to turn to if we intend to survive on the face of earth. Because the other culture, the one that celebrates war and domination and domination over women, nature, and other people is about to destroy the, the possibility of life as we know it on Earth, not only right. for humans, but for other than human species as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. And they, well, of course, you know, they didn't like that because that was, to them, her emotional uh, reaction. Well, good for her. <laughs> I mean, shouldn't we be emotionally reacting to the fact that we're living that, as you said at the beginning, Karen, and in very um, difficult times for mm-hmm. for people and Mother Earth. Well, and let's face it, you know, aren't they, aren't men, uh, and of course not all men, but the, the sorts of men that we're talking about, you know, aren't they being emotional when they are continue to be in denial about all of this? I mean, just the word patriarchy. I mean, it feels like you can't even say the word. Um, I remember uh, talking to Heidi Gottner Abendroth about the pushback she would get uh, just trying to talk about patriarchy at conferences. Uh, and I've been appalled, quite frankly. And, and look, I will be the first one to admit that I have sort of been resisting the news. I don't have, you know, I don't have the ability or the desire to read everything out there. But in this hashtag Me Too discussion that's been going on here in the United States and has bled over into Europe, I have yet to see an article that lays this male privilege and this, you know, to, this male privilege and license to abuse and do mm-hmm. violence at the at the feet of patriarchal religion. You know, no one has connected the dots there. Um, you it know, I the, keep waiting to find something. <laughs> it's patriarchal religion, but also um, 
patriarchal socialization. It's all the different forms of, of, of life in what I don't necessarily consider civilized culture. Yeah, True. I, uh, yeah. Had a, well, it, go ahead, Carol. I had a conversation a couple of years ago with uh, two friends who are Minoan archaeologists, uh, a senior scholar and a, a junior scholar, and um, they they like me. You know, they've known me for years. They respect me on some level, um, but. Um, and they know that I bring very smart women over to Crete, and that surprises them. Anyway, um, I just—they both believe that the Minoan mother goddess was the primary deity in ancient Crete. Um, they tend to would like to believe that it was a peaceful culture. Um, they tend to believe that. But uh, the Athenian scholar had recently uncovered an artifact, and he he defined it as the. The, the king and the queen being received by the goddess. And so I said, why, I, you know, if you look at it, they're not wearing crowns. You know, they're not that much bigger than anybody else in, the, in this little diorama. Um, why do you have to assume that there's uh, a king and a queen or any type of a ruling elite in ancient Crete? That was the topic we met to discuss. As soon as, I don't know what, we, what my friend and I said, but as soon as we opened our mouths, uh, the younger scholar said, but men aren't responsible for all the evil in the world. Um, there were women guards in Nazi Germany. And I was women? just like, <laughs> <laughs> I said, I said um, nobody said men are responsible for all the evil in the world. If something is, it might be called patriarchy. But patriarchy men, is. Men are not, all men are not patriarchal, and all men didn't create patriarchy. Um, but we could not get off the subject of evil and Nazi Germany and never were able to discuss in a rational way any of the evidence about Manon Creed. So this is, they accuse us of being emotional. Yeah. <laughs> but they, yeah. the emotional yeah. reaction just came right out. Um, yeah. Well, and then they well, don't, then they don't uh, want to look at the evidence um, that, that there might be a different well, way. Well, you know, there are. It, it feels like there are so many taboo subjects. You know, um, I, I know it's been difficult uh, sometimes on social media. Uh, I mean, like with the with the Roy Moore Senate race, when you saw how so many white women supported Roy Moore, and how many uh, black women, who I'm certainly I'm certain feel more oppressed. Well, you know, they sided uh, with the Democrats, and and I understand it. You know, having taken Taken some courses of political activism, uh, you know, it's intersectionality. Uh, but you know, I, I feel like that you know those sorts of things need to be talked about because it speaks to maybe you know I guess going back to that uh, quote again uh, from um, uh, Simone de Beauvoir, you know, we need to look at why women can't. Um, you know, come together in solidarity. You know, why do they side with the oppressor? Uh, you know, because you do have, you know, the women who've propped up the KKK, the women who support female genital mutilation, the women who support corporatism over, uh, you know, uh, people having a more level playing field and workers not being exploited. You know, all of that. They keep the churches, patriarchal churches propped up. I mean, if women woke up one day and did didn't support patriarchy anymore, the world would 
would absolutely change. Uh, but it seems like it's a difficult subject to talk about, as is white female privilege. Um, and I don't know, it, is, either of you have any thoughts on that? Well, yesterday I uh, was watching on my Facebook feed, uh, came up a, a lecture, uh, an interview by Robert Rice, the economist from Berkeley, with Arlie Hothschild, who's a sociologist from UC Berkeley. And it was about her recent <clears throat> book um, in which she talked about the, the, what did she call it, the story that um, white people who uh, vote against their own interests to tell themselves. And it's a story about uh, uh, how, you know, they've been working hard all their lives and somebody butted into the line in front. She didn't use the word butted, but that's exactly what they would use. Butted into the line in front of them, uh, whether it was a black, a woman, a gay or whatever, a Muslim or whatever, and got ahead and getting, you know, the place that they have worked so hard. Anyway, in the course of the lecture, um, they started discussion, discussing the fact that she found that many of the people she interviewed uh, liked Bernie Sanders and they hated Hillary Clinton. Now, there's good reasons to hate Hillary Clinton, Karen, and I know a lot about that. But anyway, um, but, you know, they just passed that right over and they never said uh, they hated Hillary Clinton in part because she's a woman. <laughs> and, you know, it's not just that they believe in whiteness, they also believe in white maleness and, you know, the women, too, that vote along with their men. Um, but, they, again, it's like we just passed that right over. Um. It, it, it's, it's, um, it's frustrating, you know, because you, we can't actually get to the conversation. Um, it, it just seems to keep uh, getting pushed to the back burner. Um, I, I mean, and likewise, uh, you know, there's this uh, a theology professor I hope to get on the show soon, uh, uh, Janine Hill Fletcher. She wrote a book uh, claiming that white Christians are responsible for racism and discrimination in America. She herself is white. And, you know, she proposes that strategies that will foster racial hearing, uh, healing, um, you know, might be first demanding that maybe white Christians accept their responsibility for racist policies, structures discrimination in America. I, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, there's so many people wearing so many different types of blinders. You know, the truth is so hard to come by. Um, but, uh, you know, it, maybe it's because we are into what we're into. You know, we have so long ago um, dropped those shackles uh, that it's maybe a little bit easier for us to see the culprits, in a sense. I'm, you know, maybe that's not the best word to use, but um, to to see where the the oppression comes from, you know, and the people who uh, who prop it up. And I think it's really hard to upset some people's apple carts that you know it may be them. Yeah, or their favorite professor, or their favorite book, or. <laughs> their father or <laughs> yeah yeah it i mean it's it's an uncomfortable subject you know it's it's controversial it's awkward but you know what do they say about you know you shed light on something and you know maybe you can heal it cleanse it um whatever and you know maybe we're going a little bit astray here but um it it's it's peripheral uh, to this conversation and the idea that, you know, women uh, have no history, have no religion of their own. 
Um, you know, I, I, I guess I just think about if, uh, if more women were open to these ideas and could shake off the shackles of uh, patriarchal thinking, patriarchal religion, and they would find so many more options uh, open to themselves instead of being complicit in their own oppression. Absolutely. But, you know, I guess maybe that's asking, that's asking a lot, maybe, you know. Um, and maybe, uh, again, you know, when, when, you know, we're all in our own bubbles, and this sort of stuff is maybe easy for us to see and think about and talk about where somebody else would, you know, only feels comfortable keeping their head buried in the sand at this point in their life. Or feels more comfortable with traditional Abrahamic religion of one sort or another. And that keeps them um, really in, in a patriarchal vice. Well, and, and maybe the truth of it is, I mean, myself coming from the South, um, I know most of the women, uh, you know, that I knew back there, they don't care about feminism. They don't care that, mm-hmm. um, you know, that males dominate their lives. Um, you know, they would rather take a back seat instead of being in, in full partnership. Um, I mean, the women I've interviewed from the Quiverful movement, for instance, you know, say that, you know, they know that they enter into, it's a deal, you know, they will submit to be taken care of. Um, And that's kind of the deal they make going in. And maybe that's okay for some people. Well, it's not really okay, but it's a deal that they're willing to make. I mean, at great cost to themselves, no doubt. Um, I uh I I keep thinking about uh, the fact that my one of my um friends was at a party at my parents' house and one of my father's friends pinched her in the butt. This was 20 or 30 years ago. Um and she didn't say anything to me at the time and I didn't say any, you know, so it never came out. Um but as I think about that, I think, well, what did they do to my mother? What did my father's friends do to all their friends? Yes, why right. when they have a few too many drinks? I mean, women have been abused. And these women, you know, are the type of women who don't, if their daughter comes and says she's been, you know, sexually abused in the family, will brush it under the rug. If she herself has been sexually abused, they say, oh, well, you know, it only happened a couple of times. It wasn't that bad, and I've forgotten about it, so it doesn't matter. Um, In order to keep this bargain going, you have to keep denying uh, things that are right. Denial, that's right and that have happened to your own body or the body of your daughters. Um, before I go, are there any other questions about prehistory, or are um, at this point will you, Karen, and, and Carol talk about more um, contemporary problems? Well, well, let me let me uh, answer that by saying this. You know, this is a huge subject, and um, are there are, are there things I have maybe failed to ask, Miriam, that you think are important points that you want to make? Because if if it is, please do. Um, you know, because I if I don't I don't want you to you know hold back from. Um, uh, you know, mentioning some things about this that, you know, just because I haven't asked. Um, I can't think of anything offhand. I've really talked about what I hope to talk about. 
Okay. Well, yeah, well I thank feel you for the same being way. with I us tonight. That, you know, we can, this conversation has come to a very uh, rounded conclusion. I think we've covered, you know, everything, yeah. and maybe we'll come on again sometime to talk about, you know, patriarchy in general or something. <laughs> I feel quite okay. pleased okay. with the whole, the yeah, I the whole I feel discussion. Yeah, I feel satisfied. Okay. All right. Well, great. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I've enjoyed the conversation, and I thank mm-hmm. you both for interrupting your holidays to uh, to talk about this. And, uh, you know, I feel like this was a gift to all of our listeners, you know, a gift for the holidays, not just that, uh, you know, that Maria's work has finally been vindicated, but that you both came on the show and uh, shared this important information, explained it all so we could all sort of get up to speed um, and uh, and know what's going on. So thank you both so very much, and I hope you both thank have a great you. rest of your holiday. And I thank think you so really much for having us on. And I yeah, just want exactly. to mention that Dawn has broken while we're while we've been talking. Dawn has broken Lesbos, so oh, that may be a, we can take that as a sign. Beautiful. <laughs> well, I, I have that. That beautiful image in my mind, Carol. Thank you. Thank you so much. And Miriam, thank you so much, too. Uh, thank you both thank for being you. on the show. Thank you, Karen. Okay. Thank you. All right. Good, good, night. good night and happy new year. Good, good morning. <laughs> bye-bye. <laughs> bye. Yeah. All right. Bye-bye. Well, listeners, I hope you've uh, enjoyed that uh, very in-depth conversation uh, that I just had with Miriam and uh, Carol Christ. And if any of you were uh, more interested in that quote we were referring to earlier uh, by Simone de Beauvoir, let me read the whole quote to you. Um, I'm probably going to be talking a little bit uh, more about this uh, with uh, Leia LaFleur in the coming weeks. But uh, Simone said, and I'll quote, Women lack concrete means for organizing themselves into a unit which can stand face-to-face with the correlative unit. Uh, They have no past, no history, no religion of their own, and they have no such solidarity of work and interest as that of the proletariat. They live dispersed among the males, attached through residence, housework, economic condition, and social standing to certain men fathers or husbands more firmly than they are to other women. If they belong to the bourgeoisie, they feel solidarity with men of that class, not with proletarian women. If they are white, their allegiance is to white men, not to Negro women. That bond uh, that unites her to her oppressors is not comparable to any other. I think that's really important. Uh, at, at least it's really meaningful to me because I, for one, was trying desperately uh, a few years ago to understand what's so hard. You know, why won't women stick together? You know, we are the majority uh, in here in the United States. If we just stuck together, just imagine the things we might accomplish. Um, and then, you know, since uh, Trump got elected and you see stuff like, white women supporting people like Roy Moore, you know, it begs the question, why does this happen? You know, why, uh, you know, why do, are women so complicit in their own oppression? And this explains it. And, you know, more to the point, I think, of um, what we talked about tonight, Maria's work, uh, this idea of a goddess-centered culture, um, you know, an, or an egalitarian or an equalitarian culture, you know, it goes back to the idea that we talk about sometimes about mythology shapes our culture. So, 
uh, and, and it ties in here with what uh, Simone de Beauvoir said, you know, mythology shapes our culture. She's just using other words. If, if women don't have their, their own religion, in a sense, uh, the, the religion of, of, that isn't patriarchal, if they don't have their own mother goddess, uh, you know, if, if you have a culture that uh, all the mythology is about a male god, well, you end up with male leadership. You end up with patriarchy. You end up with uh, authoritarian uh, systems like we have now, uh, a dominator culture, as, as uh, Rihanna Eisler talks about. Uh, and, you, and those are the values that are... Um, sort of shapes society instead of uh, collaboration, partnership, equality, peace, justice. Um, you know, it's survival of the fittest. It's about the I and the me, not the we and the us. It's not about the common good. Uh, it's, it's, you know, the, it's the guy with the most bombs and bullets. It's the guy with the biggest stick. It's about the strong man. And... Um, you know, so that's why it's so important that we have our own mythology, we have our own narratives, we have our own history. Otherwise, we just continue to get sucked into, and, you know, I'll use the word brainwashing, I'll use the word propagandized. Um, you know, uh, we end up with, you know, so many women that just buy into uh, the culture of their oppressors. Uh, rather than understanding there is uh, an alternative. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's a big subject. Um, you know, it's about racism and sexism. It's about, uh, you know, I like to think it's even, uh, you know, part of the problem of uh, why we can't talk about anything besides capitalism uh, as uh, what we have, uh, you know, for our economic systems. Um, you know, you look at, uh, you know, Calvinism uh, and prosperity gospels, uh, you know, and again, it's, it's uh, you know, has led to all of this greed. I think it's Kevin Cruz has the book out uh, that talked about how Christianity has been co-opted by corporations. Uh, and we wonder, you know, why we're in the shape we're in. Uh, there's, there's really a lot to talk about. There's a big subject, but, you know, it really does go back to losing a feminine face of God, and you can connect the dots to all of these, uh, or an awful lot of these woes in society, whether it be, you know, women complicit in their own oppression, like the women who vote for Roy Moore, uh, you know, a, a pedophile basically, um, uh, you know, or women who support female genital mutilation or the KKK and white supremacy and, um, you know, uh, who vote for political parties that uh, uh, just, you know, further intensify the income disparity rather than supporting workers. You know, it, it, I see it as all connected. You know, it, it is uh, you, you can just connect the dots from all of this. Losing a feminine face of God, we lose the feminine values, and we end up where we're at right now. But to bring things full circle, um, I do believe that um, things are potentially getting better. And I think these glimmers that I spoke about when I opened the show uh, are relevant glimmers. Uh, we had that win um, 
in um, in Alabama. Uh, we have how many more people? You know, how many more women running for office? How many more progressives running for office? Uh, I mean, it was unheard of before Bernie Sanders uh, to be talking about income disparity and the domination of corporations. And uh, you know, the Democrats weren't really talking about any of this because they all went corporatist. Um, you know, so Bernie Sanders has made uh, you know huge headway to uh, change people's thinking to more of a we and an us uh, mindset instead of an I and a me. Um, I think people are maybe starting to understand more about what feminism really is, rather than um, you know some of the more negative uh, connotations of uh, feminism. Uh, again, the December issue of Vogue talked about menstruation, uh, you know, in a positive way. So let's just uh, hang in there, you know. Let's just keep doing what we do and uh, standing for what we stand for and believing what we believe and putting out that energy into the world um, uh, that reflects what we want to manifest and, um, you know, I, I think we will prevail. I mean, how many of us thought in our lifetime uh, our beloved Maria would be vindicated? Now, it's not a whole vindication yet, but it's a start. So, you know, feel good about these wins. You know, we have to feel good about them. Uh, we deserve to feel good about them. Um, you know, consider these your presence under the tree. Well, uh, that about does it uh, for me tonight. Um, I want to thank you all for tuning in. I hope you will um, share this interview uh, with your friends uh, so that everyone uh, learns about this uh, new news about Maria's work. And um, uh, it, it is truly a wonderful thing. And all of our goddess-oriented, feminist-oriented uh you know, folks, uh, women and men alike, um, make sure they hear about this. Feel free to share this link uh, wherever you like uh, because the information is important and um, we, uh, you know, we, we need to be the, um, um, the Pied Pipers, if you will. Well, I uh, wish you all uh, a very happy holiday season and uh, I will be back uh, with you again next year and I will let you hear the whole uh, chant uh, from the Reclaiming Folks, uh, Weave and Spin uh, it's one of their great um, uh, activist songs and I've been playing a lot of those lately, they're upbeat and uh, you know they're about uh, solidarity and working together, uh, so again this is from uh, Reclaiming Campfire uh, chants and songs. Uh, so we'll just close the show off tonight with uh, Weave and Spin. Uh, good night, dear listeners. Thank you so much for your listener loyalty, and uh, have a great holiday. Good night.
Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.